This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. And I'm Juan Gonzalez. Welcome to all of our listeners and viewers around the country and around the world. Today, we spend the hour with Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks. It's been nearly five years since he entered the, the Ecuadorian embassy in London, seeking political asylum, fearing a Swedish arrest warrant could lead to his extradition to the United States. Despite being holed up in the embassy, Assange's impact is still being felt across the globe. His asylum case recently became an issue in the Ecuadorian presidential election. The right-wing candidate Guillermo Lasso had vowed to remove Assange from the embassy if he won. But Lasso lost to President Rafael Correa's former vice president, Lenin Moreno, who said Assange is welcome to stay. Meanwhile, WikiLeaks recently began releasing a massive trove of secret CIA documents exposing how the agency has developed tools to hack into and spy on principal phones, computers and televisions all over the world. WikiLeaks described the leak as the largest ever release of confidential documents on the CIA. WikiLeaks' activity before the 2016 election is also still generating headlines. Just before the Democratic National Convention last July, WikiLeaks published 20,000 internal emails from the Democratic National Committee. Within two days, the head of the DNC, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, resigned her post, in part because the email showed the DNC worked behind the scenes to discredit and defeat Bernie Sanders, who is challenging Hillary Clinton for the nomination. Less than three months later, WikiLeaks began publishing internal emails from Clinton's campaign chairman, John Podesta. Soon, Donald Trump was praising WikiLeaks on the campaign trail. This just came out. This just came out. WikiLeaks! I love WikiLeaks! Between October 7th and Election Day, WikiLeaks would go on to publish 20,000 of Podesta's emails, generating a rash of negative stories about the Clinton campaign. U.S. intelligence agencies have accused Russia of hacking the DNC and Podesta accounts, but many questions still remain about what happened. During a recent congressional hearing, FBI Director James Comey placed the blame on Russia intelligence when questioned by Congressman Adam Schiff. Do you know whether the Russian intelligence services dealt directly with WikiLeaks or whether they, too, used an intermediary? We assessed they used some kind of cutout. They didn't deal directly with WikiLeaks, in contrast to DC Leaks and Guccifer 2.0. That was FBI Director James Comey on March 20th. Well, joining us now from the Ecuadorian Embassy in London is Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks. Julian, welcome back to Democracy Now! Good morning, Amy. Did Russia leak the documents, either the DNC documents or the John Podesta emails, to WikiLeaks? We have said quite clearly that our source is not a member of any state, uh, including the Russian government. Uh, now, if you look at these statements by James Coney, uh, James Clapper, uh, going back a couple of months, uh, statements by Barack Obama, uh, they all are harmonious uh, with our description. Now, what, uh, what the U.S. Uh, investigation by James Comey seems to be trying to say, at least in public, uh, is that they uh, perceived that there was some uh, Russian hacking, or at least some hacking from somewhere, uh, of the DNC 
uh, other institutions in the United States. In fact, the allegations are that several thousands of people uh, were hacked uh, in those operations. But how do you know—how well, do you know it's not Russia? How do you know it's not a state actor, since you usually say you don't know who gives you documents? We, as we look very closely at our publications. We tend to come to a good understanding of them. And so uh, we're not willing to go into details about our source, because it might uh, describe the sort of person they are, uh, the sort of jurisdiction that they're in, uh, which could put them at risk. Uh, but we have said clearly that our source is not a member of the Russian state. Uh, and uh, even the US government is not suggesting uh, that our source uh, is a member of the Russian state. And what appears to be going on is that uh, there have been observations of hacking of um, thousands of people or attempted hacking of thousands of people. That's quite normal uh, in intelligence gathering, gathering activity before an election. Uh, presumably, that's been carried out by many states. I would be uh, surprised if that doesn't include Russia. And over here, there's the publications of WikiLeaks. Uh, and what there isn't is something in, in between the middle. So there's a, a allegation that, well, if there's been hacking here and there's publication over here, then uh, these must be directly, causally, intentionally related. Uh, but so far, there's no evidence for that. Uh, Julian, I want to turn to a Democratic congressman, uh, Adam Schiff, speaking at a hearing of the House Intelligence Committee last month. Later in July and after the convention, the first stolen emails detrimental to Hillary Clinton appear on WikiLeaks. A hacker who goes by the moniker Guccifer 2 claims responsibility for hacking the DNC and giving the documents to WikiLeaks. But leading private cybersecurity firms, including CrowdStrike, Mandiant, and ThreatConnect, review the evidence of the hack and conclude with high certainty that it was the work of APT28 and APT29 who are known to be Russian intelligence services. The U.S. intelligence community also later confirms that the documents were in fact stolen by Russian intelligence and Guccifer II acted as a front. Also in late July, candidate Trump praises WikiLeaks, says he loves them, and openly appeals to the Russians to hack his opponent's emails, telling them that they will be richly rewarded by the press. Uh, that was Congressman Adam Schiff. Uh, Julian, I'm wondering if you could res uh, re respond to some of the things he say he's saying uh, in that statement. Well, Mr. Schiff is a Democratic uh, congressman who's trying to whip up a, a kind of neo-McCarthyist fervor uh, in order to distract uh, from the epic failure uh, of Hillary Clinton and that team uh, when they lost, of all people, to Donald Trump. So it's, it's not, not particularly interesting. I, I think we should uh, pull back and put things in context. Uh, the United States government, uh, since uh, 1950, has intervened uh, in 81 elections, interfered, uh, to use Schiff's language, in 81 elections. That is not including coups, which over, have overthrown the government. Uh, so there, there's a long history of the United States uh, doing this to places ar around the world uh, uh, in, in inf infamous ways and uh, most recently uh, alleged interference uh, in the election uh, of Israel. So I, I think we should understand that uh, the United States is in a glass house when it comes to allegations uh, of attempting to interfere with 
or influence uh, election results. But let's look at what is the real meat of this issue. How is it alleged uh, that Russia uh, has interfered uh, in the US election uh, process? Well, they say uh, there's been a variety of hacks. Well, that's quite normal uh, intelligence gathering process as far as can be determined. Uh, and a few uh, extremely uh, ineffectual uh, websites such as DC Leaks uh, or Guccifer 2.0 that no one really paid any attention to. And then there's our publications, uh, which people really did pay attention to. Now, what is in our publications? Uh, well, from our perspective, uh, we have just uh, published accurately and fairly uh, what Hillary Clinton uh, said her positions were uh, in her secret speeches to Goldman Sachs uh, and in relation to the DNC and its attempt to uh, rig the election to exclude the primary, primary process, sorry, to exclude Bernie Sanders. So at the heart of this issue is whether people were told the, the truth about Hillary Clinton and the DNC. If there hadn't been an ugly truth there, it wouldn't have made any difference. There was an ugly truth, uh, and we published accurately and fairly that ugly truth. Uh, now, our source uh, wasn't from the Russian state, but if it had been from a state, would we have suppressed that information before an election, or would we have accurately and fairly published it? Of course we would have published it. Well, but you know, I wanted to ask you, in relation to what you said, uh, we've had uh, other guests on, for instance, Scott Horton, who said, yes, you're absolutely right, the United States has been involved in seeking to destabilize governments and o overthrow governments all over the world. But Horton said that there's a difference between what Russia attempted to do and whether anyone in the Trump administration colluded with Russia or helped uh, uh, or, or cooperated or, or had conversations with the Russians as they were seeking to destabilize the U.S. elections. And Scott Horton says that would be a definitely a problematic issue for uh, for Trump. I'm wondering your thoughts about that. I would I would agree that would be uh, interesting and unusual. I don't think it's true. I, I think uh, it, it is interesting that uh, early on uh, that Trump and people around him uh, took a position of rapprochement towards Russia, a very strong position of rapprochement towards Russia, and not a classically Republican position. I think that is interesting. Uh, it is somewhat uh, compatible with Trump's statements going back a very long time. Um, but I would be surprised if that turns out to be significant. Uh, why do I say that? Uh, well, uh, Trump ha had very little business, business success in Russia. He hasn't managed to build a hotel in Russia. He hasn't gotten any, as far as can be determined, uh, uh, any good deals uh, in Russia. And when you see him making statements during election campaign on the stage, uh, hey, Russia, if you've got those emails, uh, give, them to our, give them to the press, they'll be very uh, pleased about it. Uh, when you see statements like that, this is not the sort of statement that you make if you are already if you already have a communications channel and you're already engaged in a in an active conspiracy. For people like Paul Manafort, uh, that's a, someone who's perfectly capable of engaging in uh, in uh, well, let's say dodgy activities. Uh, they have a long history of, of working for various parties in different ways. Uh, have they asked for support uh, through Paul Manafort? Uh, maybe. But if you're looking at the top level involving Trump, what I see is a, 
a great uh, uh, weakness uh, in an ability to get anything uh, concretely done uh, in Russia. You know, um, while Trump may or may not have investments in Russia, it's very clear the oligarchs in Russia um, have bailed him out to the tune of tens of millions of dollars, if not more, in the United States, when he was building buildings, having gone bankrupt many times, hard to get a line of credit um, in places like just right near Democracy Now!, um, Trump Soho, a major building project downtown Manhattan. But I wanted to turn back to Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff speaking at a hearing of the House Intelligence Committee last month. On August 8th, Roger Stone, a longtime Trump political advisor and self-proclaimed political dirty trickster, boasts in a speech that he has communicated with Assange and that more documents would be coming, including an October surprise. In the middle of August, he also communicates with a Russian cutout, Guccifer II, and authors a Breitbart piece denying Guccifer's links to Russian intelligence. Then later in August, Stone does something truly remarkable when he predicts that John Podesta's personal emails will soon be published. Trust me, he says, it will soon be Tr Podesta's time in the barrel. Hashtag crooked Hillary. In the weeks that follow, Stone shows a remarkable prescience. I have total confidence that WikiLeaks and my hero, Julian Assange, will educate the American people soon, he says. Hashtag lock her up. Payload coming, he predicts. And two days later, it does. WikiLeaks releases its first batch of Podesta emails. The release of John Podesta's emails would then continue on a daily basis up until the election. And this is Trump advisor Roger Stone speaking on August 8th. Uh, with regard to the October surprise, what would be your forecast on that, given what Julian Assange has intimated he's going to do? Well, it could be any number of things. I actually have uh, communicated with Assange. Uh, I believe the next tranche of his documents pertain to the Clinton Foundation, but there's no telling what the October surprise may be. That was Roger Stone speaking August 8th in Broward County, Florida. Um, if you could respond to the substance of what they're saying, Julian, and explain what is your relationship with Roger Stone? Well, I don't want to be an apologist uh, for these people, but. Uh, really, uh, party politics in the United States uh, is something that everyone has to get away from. Uh, this, this creation of, of uh, two polarities by different elites that then suck up uh, all the political energy uh, in the country. Uh, well, we can talk a little bit later about what's happened uh, to the Trump administration and uh, this fascinating process that we've been seeing about how many days uh, does it take uh, for the security sector to digest the president. Uh, something like 75 but appears to be the answer. Uh, okay. Uh, Roger Stone, um, I've never communicated with the guy. He's never communicated with me, uh, where other than very recently to say, what are you doing uh, saying that we have communicated? Please explain, because as far as all our records are concerned, we haven't. Uh, he has simply brilliantly inserted himself uh, into uh, this equation. Now, remember, Stone was pushed out uh, in 2015 from the Trump campaign. Uh, when WikiLeaks was engaged in its publications uh, exposing interference in the primary process at the DNC, that was the 
biggest thing on the political uh, radar uh, for that time period. And so Stone, having nowhere to be, uh, decided to suggest that he had uh, communications with us. But let's look at his predictions. He predicted that our publications were going to be about the Clinton Foundation. He was wrong. Uh, all his other predictions, uh, where they're accurate, uh, are statements that we made in public. Uh, we said we had information about Hillary Clinton, that we were going to publish it, etc. Uh, so when you hear Adam Schiff saying, oh, that Roger Stone said that there's uh, that WikiLeaks publications are coming, we were saying, I was saying uh, on uh, TV interviews that we had publications that were coming that were about Hillary Clinton. So uh, Stone predicted that we were going to publish on October 4. We didn't publish on October 4. That was our 10-year anniversary, etc. Literally, there's no predictions that he has made in relation to us uh, that have come true that have not been public. So uh, I, I think, you know, you have to admire the chutzpah of how he has uh, played uh, on democratic um, desires uh, to see a connection uh, and has exploited that uh, in order to sell his books and in order to gain prominence. I mean, it's, it's very impressive. Uh, he just simply lays out a piece of bait uh, that uh, he understands that the democratically aligned press uh, will leap forward slavishly uh, and put that hook in their mouth. Julian, uh, we have to break. Because it, because it suits him. WikiLeaks has published what it says is the largest leak of secret CIA documents in history. The thousands of documents, dubbed Vault 7, describe CIA programs and tools that are capable of hacking into both Apple and Android cell phones. By hacking into entire phones, the CIA is then reportedly able to bypass encrypted messenger programs such as Signal. Telegram and WhatsApp. Although, contrary to many news reports, the documents do not show the CIA has developed tools to hack these encrypted services themselves. The documents also outline a CIA and British intelligence program called Weeping Angel, through which the spy agency can hack into a Samsung smart television and turn it into a surveillance device that records audio conversations, even when it appears to be off. To talk more about the Vault 7 documents, we're going back to the Ecuadorian embassy in London. We already are joined by Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks. Talk about the significance of this latest um, release of documents, uh, Julian, that WikiLeaks has engaged in. Vault 7 is the largest intelligence leak in history. Uh, we have published so far uh, less than 1 percent uh, of that material. Uh, now, so far, the publications that we have published uh, reveal that the Central Intelligence Agency uh, has decided to uh, create, uh, in the last uh, 10 years, uh, its own captive version of the National Security Agency, uh, not specialised in bulk interception, uh, but specialised uh, in semi-automated hacking processes. That's creation of viruses, trojans, etc., uh, to put in uh, people's computer systems, telephones, TVs, and have those then report back to CIA listening posts uh, that collect that information and ingest it uh, into the broader CIA process. Uh, and also information can be pushed uh, using these mechanisms on uh, to those telephones, computers, et cetera, et cetera, to, for example, uh, plant information uh, that could uh, implicate someone uh, falsely or perhaps even truly, uh, in a crime. So I, I think it's 
it's significant that as the Central Intelligence Agency gained budgetary and political preeminence pre of the National Security Agency, which used to have a bit bigger budget, in the post-9-11 environment, the CIA's uh, budget is now increased to about 1.5 times that of the National Security Agency. So in response to that uh, uh, increased political power, where increased budgetary spend comes from, uh, it has created its own uh, effective air force uh, using drones uh, and its own large uh, hacker squad. So it is able to do things internally that it would previously have to go out uh, for others to do. So the Central Intelligence Agency, like all institutions, uh, is maximizing uh, its institutional power. Uh, and it is slowly succeeding uh, compared to other institutions. Now, in response to the various disclosures about the National Security Agency, most importantly, the uh, Edward Snowden disclosures uh, in, of 2013, uh, industry has responded to market demand in various places and various engineers ideologically also invested in this uh, to introduce encryption in WhatsApp, in Signal, uh, uh, greater type, more types of encrypted email and so on. Uh, now, the Central Intelligence Agency's hacking approach uh, does not target uh, the intermediaries like the National Security Agency does for these bulk intercepts. Uh, instead, it targets the endpoints, and then it doesn't need to worry about encryption. For example, uh, if you and I, Amy, are communicating uh, using, say, Signal uh, on a, a smartphone, on a, an Apple or Android, uh, then the signal encryption protocol is actually quite good. Uh, and as far as no, is known, it cannot be uh, decrypted by an intermediary, uh, bulk spying on uh, communications traffic going across the Atlantic, uh, like the National Security Agency does. Uh, but if either you or I have the, our phones hacked uh, and the CIA software specializes in doing this, uh, it means that that encryption doesn't matter because the because the information is gathered either before it's encrypted or after it is decrypted. Well, uh, Julian, in terms of the material you have released so far, you did redact any of the computer codes that you got access to, and you offered to have uh, uh, companies uh, that may be affected by this, tech companies, uh, to, to uh, provide them the code so they could fix any vulnerabilities. Have any companies taken you up on the offer? Yes, that, that's a, a very interesting process, and we knew that it would be. Uh, so we made this uh, offer publicly, um, and we also wrote to a number of the large companies, such as Apple, Microsoft, Google, uh, Mozilla, which produces the Mozilla browser, et cetera. Now, uh, the European companies responded almost immediately. Some even approached us. Uh, a couple of US companies, such as Mozilla, responded immediately. Uh, and we were also approached by a security engineer at, at uh, Cisco. Uh, Google, Apple, and Microsoft uh, took uh, eight or nine days, depending on the company, to respond. Now, that means that they were putting their, all the users at risk for eight or nine days. What was happening in that eight or nine days? Well, we, we hear, uh, we're not sure it's true for all of the companies, but we hear uh, from one of the companies, that what was happening is that they were engaging their lawyers, they were being worried about the politics, et cetera, et cetera. My guess is that on the legal front, uh, a type of collaboration uh, involving uh, classified uh, material 
it could be argued to be uh, conspiracy uh, to commit espionage. Now, of course, that's not uh, actually practically possible in the US court system or politically possible. Uh, and then these companies have individuals within them who have security clearances because they work on classified projects for the government. Uh, and particularly the security divisions of Apple, Google, Microsoft, et cetera, have people with uh, uh, security clearances in them and who might lose their security clearances if they're engaged in working uh, on uh, information that is being distributed uh, not through a formal process. So uh, what you see in the uh, all those big three taking eight or nine days is some kind of collaboration, either directly with each other or through a third party, say, like the Department of Justice, uh, to understand what role that they're going to play. And the role that they ended up playing is, is saying, uh, no, we don't agree to fix anything which we had asked for uh, within 90 days. Uh, no, we don't agree to say that any fix came from you. This was our, our uh, requirement. Uh, in, instead, you can just throw something uh, at our regular mm, security reporting mechanism. So what's going on there? Uh, well, no uh, no uh, record of collaboration uh, in, a, in a formal sense uh, or in a political sense that could be used to um, make political problems for those companies in terms of their uh, contracts with the United States government uh, or uh, potentially introduce problems in relation to the Espionage Act uh, or security clearances. That's my supposition. We don't know that's true for sure. Uh, we know that some of that is true for at least one of these companies. But looking at the timing, uh, it's, it's very unusual that Google, Microsoft and Apple all wrote back to us on the eighth or ninth day, whereas the other companies uh, wrote back immediately or, or at various times. In October, The Intercept published a conversation between Glenn Greenwald and Naomi Klein about WikiLeaks's decision to disclose thousands of John Podesta's personal emails. This is part of what Naomi Klein said. I would add, it's not just that they didn't curate it um, and just dumped it all, right? They, they, they are dumping it, but they are, they're, they are um, doling out the dumps, <laughs> right, um, to maximize, clearly, to maximize damage, right? So they're not just saying, hey, information wants to be free, here's everything we have. Journalists have a field day, go through it, right? Um, you know, they're very clearly looking for maximum media attention. Um, you can tell that just by looking at the WikiLeaks, you know, Twitter feed um, and, you know, timing it you know, right before the debate. And you've written about um, you know, how uh, dangerous it is for media organizations to be taking such a highly political uh, approach to this election because they so clearly don't want Trump to get elected. So they're engaging in what you've described as journalistic fraud, right? I agree with you. Right. Um, but we have to acknowledge how political WikiLeaks and Julian are being here. That was Naomi Klein in October. Uh, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, your, your response to some of her remarks. <laughs> Well, I, I think it's a bit rich for Naomi Klein, who's a very wealthy woman uh, sitting up there in Canada, uh, to be uh, accusing a political prisoner who's been detained uh, for the last seven years without charge in violation of two UN rulings uh, without getting her facts straight. So what what is WikiLeaks to do? 
sit on and suppress uh, evidence uh, of interference in the DNC process, uh, wait until after the, the DNC uh, Congress to publish that information, that would be deeply unethical for this organisation. I would argue it, it would be deeply unethical for any media organisation, but for this organisation would be deeply unethical. We have a commitment to the public uh, that we will not suppress information like that, and we have a commitment to sources who come forward uh, taking risks to give us information, uh, that we will publish it uh, in a timely fashion once we have verified that it is completely accurate. Now, do we wish uh, that we had uh, more money and could process information uh, faster? Uh, of course we do. Uh, but we did manage to get that publication out before the DNC, and I think that was very important uh, so that people involved in that uh, process could understand who it was uh, that they were uh, choosing to go for. Now, let's be realistic. Uh, Naomi has a particular issue, a very important issue, and I agree it's an important issue, uh, which is climate change. Uh, and so she was willing to uh, attack anyone in her campaign uh, to make sure Hillary Clinton was elected uh, because she perceived that Hillary Clinton would do better on climate change. I agree, it's a very serious issue. Uh, but in relation to WikiLeaks, we are an organisation that has a commitment to the public uh, to publish true information and not suppress it, and to make sure that as many people read it as possible. Is it true that the way that uh, we staged our publishing process increased the uh, engagement of people in reading our material, going through it, et cetera, et cetera? Of course it is. Uh, did we do a good job? Did we, did we do a good job uh, in getting people, enticing people uh, to read and report on our material? Yes, we did. Uh, and we will do that for any source, any whistleblower that comes to us uh, and gives us information. And we will try and maximise uh, the amount of readers uh, that uh, uh, come as a result of the risks that those people take. That's, that's our, our promise. Uh, to the public, uh, to our readers, uh, and to our sources. Um, you know, early in the campaign, uh, Naomi did write an article um, that uh, uh, clearly supporting Bernie Sanders, writing Hillary uh, Clinton cannot be trusted. But we are also joined by Alan Nairn, longtime investigative journalist and activist. Um, Alan, if you can weigh in this discussion um, right now as we talk to Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy. Uh, well, I have a first. Uh, I have a brief question for Julian Assange, uh, Mr. Assange. You said that uh, you did not get the leaks uh, directly from a state. Uh, you said you know you did not get the leaks directly from a state. Uh, do you know that Russia didn't give you the leaks through an intermediary? I'm not going to be playing 20 questions on our sources. I'm sure you understand, Alan, as a source protection organization, uh, we're not going to be inscribing circles around who our sources are, uh, how we communicate with them, uh, any properties uh, that might be used uh, to uh, uh, arrest them or um, criticize them in some future process. So it is possible that, as Comey said, Russia gave you the leaks through an intermediary? I'm simply not going to comment on it. Okay. Well, uh, my view of this is that uh, during the campaign, WikiLeaks um, often suggested that Trump would be um, less dangerous than, uh, than Clinton. 
Um, no, we didn't. Uh, I think you did. Uh, no, we didn't. I think, I think that concept is uh, wildly, gruesomely uh, mistaken. There's, there was the argument, well, it's just well, that's, the, it's, that's fine, it's, it's fine for you to say that, but you should understand that no, we didn't. In fact, I was asked a question directly uh, on Democracy Now! Uh, uh, at the time about what my, my position was, uh, asked which one I preferred. And my response is, being asked this question is being asked, uh, do I prefer cholera or do I prefer gonorrhea? Okay. Uh, well, even, let, let's I, say let's say if you frame I mean, it that I way, mean, the the idea that the two historical revisionism. I, I, I would like I would... historical revisionism is occurring, and you understand why it is occurring, because the Democratic Party had, uh, I think it's I think the I think it's lost now, but the Democratic Party had a moment for very important internal reform after its epic loss to Donald Trump. Uh, the two, a very disliked candidate as far as the polling is concerned. So the Democratic Party had an epic loss. Who was responsible for that epic loss? The Democrats. Well, the Democratic Party was, and its various structures, its institutions, the, Demo the Democrats now, are responsible now, for that epic, lo epi not, epic loss, no, no question. But if, 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 was those if I may. Telling if, the public the truth. If those people are not responsible, people take the truth and they absorb it and they think about it and they do what they want with it. And the reality is the American people so disliked uh, what was being offered to them by the Democratic Party that they decided that they preferred to blow it all up uh, rather than have Hillary Clinton. They decided they would throw the Trump grenade. I agree. Uh, I, 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 I agree with that. Uh, however, I would note that the Trump campaign thought that WikiLeaks was on their side. Now, the idea that Mr. Assange just suggested that Trump and Clinton were equally dangerous, two different deadly diseases, I think is wildly and gruesomely uh, mistaken. Clinton represented a criminal establishment. But Trump and the people he brought in with him make it worse, make it even more criminal. This idea that it was just a choice between the lesser of two evils. Well, uh, in politics, in life, you fight like hell to have good choices, to have better choices. In this case, Sanders was a better alternative. But once that is no longer possible, then of course you choose uh, the lesser evil. What do you want? More evil? More killing? More pollution? More abuse of immigrants? More racism? Uh, more impunity for corporations? More aid to death squads? More spending for the military? All of that is what you uh, get with uh, Trump, in distinction to the bad the other bad things you would have gotten with, uh, uh, with, with Clinton. And the, uh, the win of Clinton was not—or, I'm sorry, the, the victory of Trump was not equally as bad as it would have been if Clinton had lost. It's a catastrophe. It's an utter catastrophe. And those who are uh, poorest, those who are already most oppressed and most vulnerable, are the ones who are suffering most as a result. And we ain't seen nothing yet. They're just getting started. Now, with Gorsuch coming on uh, the Supreme Court and with the possibility that the legislative filibuster in the Senate will be abolished, as well as the Supreme Court filibuster, if that happens, that will give Trump and the radical uh, Republican right, who now control the Congress, essentially absolute power. The only thing standing in their way will be some federal judges, which means that within the system there will be no blocking power. There will be nothing to stop them. In that case, the only way to stop them will be from 
outside the federal system, which means in the streets or from the systems of the states uh, and localities. Uh, we're in the midst of a right-wing revolution. I agree that a lot of this discussion about uh, Russia uh, and leaks is— uh, uh, is misguided, a lot of it. Uh, and it's diverting attention from two main facts. One, we're in the midst of a right-wing revolution that must be stopped and reversed. Uh, two, uh, the Democratic establishment discredited themselves, and they have to be removed and replaced by the Democratic base. Uh, Julian, your response. Uh, uh, I, I'd like to also, uh, if you can, talk about. Uh, you've mentioned it numerous times, the existence of the deep state uh, and what the relationship of the deep state is to your perspective about what's going on right now in the United States. Well, look, up, up until very recently, uh, and I guess we still have to see how it goes. Uh, uh, I, I've been uh, delighted by the conflict that has been occurring. Uh, between the incoming administration uh, and between the security services, etc. Why is that? Because it it has shed light on both. Uh, it is resulting in the courts uh, throwing nooses around the power of the presidency and tying tying them down. And I mean that's something that I predicted would happen, and it is happening very rapidly. The I the problem for. Uh, party politics in the United States, is that the, the Democrats have been in collapse uh, for almost eight years uh, at the council level, at the state level, and at the national level. Uh, so the election of Donald Trump, uh, while he's an unusual person psychologically and Hillary Clinton was a particularly bad candidate, uh, is actually part of something that's much bigger. Uh, and it's very interesting to think what that is, and because uh, any um, solution in terms of party politics has to, under has to understand why it is that the uh, democratic machinery has uh, seemingly been in inexorable collapse uh, over the last eight years. And you can perhaps say it, it's to do with gross economic factors, uh, uh, perhaps the professionalization uh, of the democratic class, where you have um, a re revolving door of contractors and so on. You can see this uh, in our, our DNC leaks, that you have um, um, educated, professionalized Democrats who have lifted off the working uh, class base uh, and who are then involved in a revolving door system, uh, becoming lobbyists, going back into the DNC, etc. Uh, if you read um, the emails we've published about John Podesta, you can see that this is not just simply something that happens. This is an expectation uh, within that community. And anyone who doesn't uh, engage in that expectation, uh, anyone who doesn't go into private industry and get a $400,000 a year uh, uh, consulting track contract as a local or foreign agent uh, is viewed to be as a fool. Uh, so you can only keep up that game for so long. Uh, and it starts to turn people off, and you start to lose the base, and that's what happened uh, in this uh, particular run. Um, but the let me get let me get Alan there. Let me get Alan's comment. I caution uh, Alan strongly. Uh, I have a lot of respect for his work, but I caution him strongly uh, to not get swept up uh, into what is an attempt by the by the Democratic Party in this particular case, but by the two parties to polarize the population into party politics. Uh, there's lots of interesting things that can come out 
of this Trump administration. We're seeing great horrors, of course, but we are seeing these Not horrors. Not so interesting to the people who are being killed the, and deported. We're seeing the, con we're seeing the conflict uh, with the security services, the deep state. Uh, now, I've been writing, uh, well, I've been writing about the deep state for uh, a decade, uh, using that word. Uh, now, Turkish academics have been writing about the equivalent uh, in Turkey, uh, some Hungarian some Hungarian investigative journalists the same within Hungary. And finally, uh, this word is now something in US politics. Uh, it's, it's not a, a new concept. It's, you know, essentially the military industrial complex plus lobbyists plus contractors plus people in the uh, Senate Intelligence uh, Committee, et cetera, et cetera. We, so we, we just, all understand what that is. We, we, and, just, have th we just have 30 yeah. seconds, Alan, and I wanted to give you, uh, get you um, uh, a final comment. The conflict between Trump and the intelligence and the deep state is a spat, not a struggle. Trump has insulted them, he has disrespected them, so they're unhappy uh, with that. More importantly, Trump wants them to change their tactics, to become more crude and even more violent. Once they work together on a couple of new wars, they'll get along just fine. Well, we're going to leave it there. I want to thank you for joining us, Alan Aaron and Julian. In our last 10 seconds, you're coming up on five years in the embassy. How are you doing in the Ecuadorian embassy in London? Well, last year, uh, I won an epic victory against the uh, UK government and the Swedish government at the UN. Formal ruling It's repeated uh, in November. Uh, those governments still have to obey the UN. I'm being illegally detained. Uh, and I should be freed and compensated. That's according to the UN.